Well, good morning. <coughs> How are you all? Yeah, okay. Good. Happy? Having a nice time? Good. Um, are you ready for a Bible study? Hey, that was, that was better than last time. My dream is that, that I'll say that one Sunday and everyone will just get up and start cheering and whooping. <laughs> yes, come on! All right, how about this? Are you ready for what God might want to say to you through his word this morning? Yes. Come on. Because there's different approaches to the Bible, isn't there? We can say, oh, it's this ancient, sometimes bizarre manuscript, and I'm not really sure what it's got to do with anything. Or we can say, you know what, this is the way that God has chosen to communicate with us. And I think um, our approach often determines the outcome we receive. Um, so we're going to see what God wants to say to us. I think that God has given me something to share with you this morning from his word. Um, but what might he say to you as you open it for yourselves today? Um, we are on Mark chapter 7. If you have your Bibles um, in front of you, please open them to chapter 7. Chapter 7. This is the penultimate chapter or sermon, if you like, in the first half of our series, Mark My Words. And my word, what a series it's been so far. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. <laughs> Great. Uh, Mark has given us so much to think about when it comes to Jesus. He's given us story after story after story after story about his power and his authority. He's told us about his healings, hasn't he? We've had loads of healings. How he deals with leprosy that was um, not curable at the time. How he deals with those that are paralysed. He just says, get up and don't forget your mat as you go. How he deals with other physical deformities. You remember the man with the, the shriveled hand? He just said, stretch out your hand and it will be healed. And it sort of popped back into place like someone blowing up a rubber glove. <laughs> Done. No problem. He's uh, talked to us about the woman that was bleeding for 12 years. Remember her? And there was the, the small girl who had the uh, somewhat incurable case of not being alive anymore. He just said to her, get up, and she sprung out of bed and started walking around. You know, I really wish I had that power for my daughter on a Monday morning when school is calling. <laughs> his, e his healing powers have even extended to Simon's mother-in-law. What grace and mercy that mother-in-laws will be included in Jesus' healing miracles. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I like my mother-in-law, really. He's told us about his ability to drive out impure spirits, hasn't he? Sure, they might moan and whine and say, what do you want with us? But he just tells them to go and they leave. Even that guy that was so riddled with impure spirits, they referred to themselves as legion, still capitulate to his commands as they run into the pigs and then promptly drown themselves. Absolutely incredible stories. He's told us that even the wind and the waves... Obey Jesus. What an amazing weatherman Jesus would have made. He'd have never been wrong, would he? He'd have said, today it's going to be sunny. You hear me, clouds? You stay away. And we'd have had good weather. He's told us about his miraculous food distribution. How he turned five loaves and two fishes into deconstructed fish fingers for 5,000. With enough leftovers to last weeks and weeks. It's a good job the disciples enjoyed fish. And he's told us about the things that he said as well. Just crazy things like, your sins are forgiven. How can someone say that if they're not God themselves? Or the Son of Man is, is Lord of the Sabbath also. Again, how can someone claim to have authority over a God ordained if they themselves 
God-ordained day if they themselves are not God. Absolutely incredible. He's always told us about the time that, that Jesus missed the boat and decided to take a stroll across the, the lake and say hello to the disciples. I sort of uh, maintain that was a bit of a prank on the disciples because it says that they thought he was a ghost, doesn't it? And so I, I like to imagine Jesus with his hood up sort of going, as he walks past. But I might be reading too much into the text. But it's, one, it's been one miraculous story after the next, after the next, after the next. And I think um, Mark's readers would have been absolutely flawed. How could they not have been? This is like Muhammad Ali versus Logan Paul. Left hook, right hook, uppercut, they'd be done. This is like the New Zealand All Blacks versus the Bristol Bears. It's literally a different league of writing. I sort of imagine them reading it and going, Mark, we get it, mate. Jesus was epic. We know. How many more stories have you got for us to hear? But then we arrive at chapter 7, or at least the first two-thirds of chapter 7. And all of a sudden, Mark seems to switch tack slightly. Um, he sort of changes gear, and, and, and maybe not in the way that we might imagine him doing so. Instead of, instead of telling us another incredible story about Jesus, he tells us the most boring, the most mundane, the most non-story story that he's told so far. Think of the most boring story you've ever heard. This is maybe a little worse. It's a story about, wait for it, washing your hands before you eat your dinner. Wow. You know that thing that your mother always used to nag you about? Maybe she still does. It's actually in the Bible. Why? Why is it there? Has Mark sort of ran out of fantastical stories? Well, no, because... Even later on in this chapter, he tells us about another exorcism and a really gross healing. But no, skipping ahead. We're going to stick um, with this story about hand washing and see if we can figure out why it's there. So are you ready for this? Verse 1 of chapter 7 says this. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who would come from Jerusalem... Do you remember those guys? They um, turned up at the end of chapter 3 and they accused Jesus of being in league um, with the devil. And then Jesus sort of floored them with logic like a mad first century rap battle. Well, they were back for round two. And it says, They gather around Jesus and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that is defiled, that is, unwashed. I know, I know. <laughs> Enjoyed that. Do you want that again? Should we see if we can do it again? Eating food with hands that were unwashed. Gosh, my goodness. <laughs> Let me just pause there for a moment to make an observation. Um, how closely must the Pharisees and the teachers of the law been watching Jesus and his disciples to notice this? How closely must they have been watching them? I sort of like to imagine the disciples um, at the local chippy, maybe snacking on a cone of chips, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders are all peering through the window. 
sort of whispering to themselves, did you, did you see them wash their hands? No. No, I don't think they did. I don't think they're even using the little wooden forks that you get off the counter. Oh gosh, imagine the mess. The, the curry sauce will be everywhere. Like it's weird, right? Like just let them eat in peace, for goodness sake. But I suppose it tells us something about how closely Jesus and his followers were being watched. And I'm going to come back to that point in a few minutes. You might remember from our previous studies that Mark is writing to um, believers in Rome. And the people he's writing to aren't all necessarily um, Jewish and so um, wouldn't have necessarily understood why the Pharisees had such an issue with the disciples eating with unwashed hands. And so Mark sort of inserts a kind of mid-paragraph footnote for us next, a sort of paranote if you like. Um, And he explains why this was such an issue for them. He says, the Pharisees and the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. When was the last time you washed your kettle? Something to think about. Now, um, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Dan, what on earth is a ceremonial washing, aren't you? I can see it on your faces. Would you like to see one? (laughs) I can move straight on if you want, but I've prepared some things. All right, cool. Um, I need a volunteer from the congregation. Steve. All right, cool. We'll have Steve. Come on up. Right, firstly... um, have you got any rings with stones in, any jewellery, anything fancy like that? Because that has to come off first. Right, now you've got to take this special two-handed cup in your left hand. Okay. Yep. Um, and you've got to pour the water over your right hand and the bowl, ideally. <laughs> right? Try to leave some in the cup. It's got to reach from your wrist to your fingertips. Exciting, isn't it? Okay, very good. And then do it again. Do it again. Not the microphones. Um, <laughs> but from, from, from your fingertips to your wrist. Beautiful. Very good. Well done. Right, now take the other handle with your right hand. Do the same thing with your left hand twice. Oh, the tension is palpable. <laughs> Nice. Okay, now you can pick up the towel, but don't dry your hands yet. Just pick it up, all right? And you've got to say the blessing. Now, I tried to learn this in Hebrew, um, but it was too difficult, so we're going to do it in English. You've got to say, blessed are you, Lord our God. Blessed are you, O Lord our God. Very good. King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments. King of the universe who has sanctified us with your commandments. Brilliant. And commanded us concerning the washing of hands. And commanded us concerning the washing of hands. Perfect. Now you can dry your hands. Can we have a round of applause, please? Um, Now I should say that traditionally you're now not allowed to speak until the blessing of the bread has been done and you've taken some. And I haven't learnt that blessing. (laughs) So you're going to have to be quiet for the rest of the morning. There we go. That was worth it, wasn't it? (laughs) Now, hopefully, what you've learnt from watching that 
is that this wasn't about personal hygiene. That isn't enough to make your hands clean from dirt and grime. Now, my um, children will tell you that it is, but it isn't. If you see them, send them back to the bathroom. Um, but this was something completely different. This was something that had its roots in the laws that were given to the nation of Israel found in Exodus and Leviticus. And the priests who performed the temple rituals were required to wash themselves before they ate. And ancient rabbis then extended that practice to include all Jewish people. And it was recorded in the Talmud, the Jewish holy book, along with the suggestion that failing to perform this ritual was seen as a serious transgression. In fact, one Talmudic sage even likened it to sleeping with a prostitute. And so they took this very, very seriously. It was a big deal. And please don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not telling you this to, to poke fun at it in any way because for a Jewish person, this was about being faithful to God. This was the way in which they showed that they were faithful, that they were serious about following his commands. And don't forget, Jesus and his followers were Jewish. They weren't Christian. That came much later on. So Mark offers us this little explanation in verse 3 and 4 about some of the traditions they observe, including the washing of hands, cups, pitchers and kettles. You might have a little footnote in your Bible next to the word kettles. Um, so it says that some early manuscripts say pitchers, kettles and dining couches. If anyone knows where you can get a dining couch, please let me know. Um, I'm interested. So anyway, the Pharisees are peering through the chippy window, they see them eating without washing, and they come up to Jesus and they ask this. They say, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Now Jesus doesn't take too kindly to this question. Maybe he was a little bit tired of being followed around by these guys. Maybe he was um, just a bit fed up with the criticism, particularly of the people that he really loved. And his response is a little bit, well, you'll see, he says this. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. He says, you've let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to human tradition." And so Jesus doesn't really answer the question directly. He does what he often does when people's hearts are turned against him or hardened. He turns the accusation around on them. But before I get into that, there's something else I just want you to notice first. Why do the Pharisees ask Jesus this question and not the disciples themselves? Because what's interesting is that Mark doesn't tell us that Jesus was eating with unwashed hands or defiled hands. He says in verse 2 that it's the disciples. And what's more interesting is this isn't the first time that this has happened in Mark. You might remember back in chapter 2 we read that Jesus was walking through the cornfield and his disciples picked some of the corn and started to eat and because it's the Sabbath the Pharisees say to Jesus, look what they are doing, it's unlawful on the Sabbath. Why not just ask the disciples themselves? Hey, what do you think you're doing? Why haven't you done the ceremonial washing? Why are you eating on the Sabbath? Here's what I think is going on. I think the Pharisees are interested in what Jesus is producing 
in the lives of those who follow him. I think the Pharisees are interested in what Jesus is producing in the lives of those who follow him. Jesus is being judged on the actions of his followers. Now let that just sink in for a minute because actually I don't think all that much has changed in these past 2,000 years. I think, I think people still make up their minds about Jesus based on what they see his followers doing. Now, in the context of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they wanted to see if, if, if Jesus' disciples would be faithful to the tradition of the elders. They wanted to see if this, this Jewish rabbi would produce good Jews, those who observe the Torah, those who keep the traditions and so on. And if not, why not? Did he just misunderstand or was he deliberately leading people astray? And today I think people respond to Christians in much the same way. They want to know what following Jesus, what being a Christian does for us. What is the result? Of course we can um, very easily be secret Christians, can't we? We can um, keep our heads down and we cannot tell anyone about our faith or what we believe in. But I think the minute we stick our head above the parapet and we say, you know what, I am a church-going, Bible-believing follower of Christ, people have expectations of us. And those expectations might be false expectations. They might assume certain things. They might assume that you are judgmental, for example. They might assume that you are self-righteous. You are maybe closed-minded or homophobic, maybe hypocritical or sexist, a religious nutjob perhaps, or maybe just boring. And many other things, ideas that they've formed perhaps from reading history or the media's portrayal of the church or maybe just from an experience that they've had with another believer. And what we have to realise is that it's our responsibility to ensure that our witness to Jesus is faithful to who he really is. Jesus said to his followers, you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so was Jesus judgmental? Well, no, I don't think he was. He said to people, your sins are forgiven, right? When he was asked to pass judgment on a woman caught in adultery, he said, if you've done nothing wrong, you can condemn her. And when everyone left, Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, didn't condemn her either. In fact, I think he even said, do not judge or you will be judged. Do not condemn or you'll be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. So not judgmental, was he self-righteous? Well, no, he was self-sacrificing. He said, whoever wants to be uh, great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. He said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul says he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And so, no, not self-righteous. Was he closed-minded? No, not at all. Even later in this chapter, Jesus makes a deliberate excursion to Tyre and Sidon, pagan regions where Jews would never have normally gone, to meet with others that were being shunned, to test the faith of believers and non-believers alike. And remark too, he was looked down upon for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Not someone you describe as closed-minded. Was he homophobic? No. I don't think he was. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost whether they're gay, straight, bisexual or anything else. We're all sinful, we're all broken. 
John writes, Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes is not condemned. So no, not homophobic. What about hypocritical? Well, he points out hypocrisy in others, but I don't think he was. He lived what he preached. He told us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And then he died for those that rejected him. And as he hangs on the cross, he prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. So not hypocritical. Was he sexist? Well, he did spend a lot of time with 12 dudes from Galilee. But then he had women followers as well. Martha, Joanna, Susanna, at least two Marys. You can never have enough Marys. He spent time talking with women, helping them, like those we saw two weeks ago in Mark 5. Or what about in Mark 3, where he says, Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. What a weird thing to say if he was just speaking to a bunch of dudes. So not sexist. Was he a religious nut job? Well, how could he be when it was the religious elite that were rejecting him? Constantly questioning his beliefs and his practices. Sure, Jesus visited and spoke in synagogues, but he also went into people's homes and he ate with them and he he drank with them. Was he boring? Yes. No, just kidding. (laughs) Of course not. I mean, have you been reading Mark? There's nary a dull moment. And so here's my point. Sometimes Jesus gets a bad rap because his followers live contrary to what Jesus actually said and did. And I think there are two ways that we can hear that this morning. If we're a Christian today, if we're a follower of Jesus ourselves, then we can ask ourselves, is the life that I'm living giving people the right impression of Jesus or the wrong one? And if we're not a Christian, I want you to be encouraged that not everything you see Christians doing is what Jesus has asked them to do even if sometimes they do it in his name. I would suggest that you have a look for yourself because sometimes the Jesus we learn about through his followers is not the Jesus of the Bible. So that's a little bit of an aside this morning, but I feel that's important to say. And so were Jesus' disciples behaving in the way he was expecting them to or not? Well, as I said earlier, Jesus doesn't really answer the question. Instead, he quotes Isaiah, one of the ancient prophets, whom the Pharisees would have been very familiar with and memorised. And he says, listen up, guys. He says, Isaiah says this, These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And guess what? He was talking about you, Pharisees. Probably not the bit of the Bible you'd want to be associated with, right? I'm still waiting for someone to tell me that Song of Songs 5.10 was written about me. It says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. Thank you. (laughs) But not Isaiah 29. To be told that your heart is far away from God, to be told that somehow you're missing the mark, that it must have been a very difficult thing to hear indeed, whether you believed it or not. And I think we need to be really careful that the same can't be said of us as well. Because... You know, our faith, it's not just about the externals, is it? It's not just about the stuff that we show to others. It's also about the internals. It's about what's going on in here, in our heart and our mind. And I'm going to come back to this idea in a few minutes because Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He goes on to explain exactly why they are like those described by Isaiah. He says, you've got a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. 
For Moses said, honor your mother and father, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, another little power note, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down, and you do many more things like that. Now, I know things are a little bit politically charged at the moment. When you hear the word Corban, your mind might go somewhere else. <laughs> Try and stick with it. This is Corban, not Corbin. Okay? Really important. But this is something a little bit political here because Jesus is talking about the law now. He's talking about the Torah for the Jews, the Pentateuch, for us the first five books of the Old Testament. Specifically here, uh, the book of Exodus, where um, God gives the people the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. It's actually um, 613 commandments found in the Torah, but this is the, these are the really important ones, the top ten. Um, and coming in at number four, honour your mother and father. You hear that, teenagers of Israel, honour your mother and father. And the expectation was that Jewish people would look after and care for their parents, particularly as they get older. And in those days, you couldn't just put them in a home. Um, don't worry, you're not going to a home. Um, <laughs> giving it away. Um, <laughs> but you would keep them, you would keep, I'm just, sorry. Um, You'd keep them in your own house and you would have to keep them fed and watered and cared for. Um, and what seemed to be happening is that the temple leaders were allowing people to avoid this responsibility by saying the resources they had could be declared as Corban, um, which is a Greek word from Corbanus, which means temple treasury. In other words, the money, the property, the food that you have in effect belongs to the temple and therefore can no longer be used to take care of Ma and Pa. What's interesting, though, is that this stuff, these resources, only needed to be promised to the temple in order to get you free of your obligation to your parents. And Jesus isn't thrilled about it, because Jesus actually cares more about people than he does about money. Surprise, surprise. I guess it's a bit like a, a pastor saying he needs a private jet instead of taking care of the poor and the needy. Thank goodness that doesn't happen. And so here we've got the Pharisees complaining to Jesus' followers about not following the tradition of the elders. And Jesus turns on them and says, hold on a minute. Wait a minute. You're not even following the commands of God. In fact, you're using your tradition as an excuse to get out of your obligation to your parents. What a sting. You sort of imagine Jesus dropping the mic and, and walking away, except that he doesn't. He uses it as an opportunity to teach the crowd. He says, listen to me, everyone. Listen and understand this. He says, nothing outside a person can defile them by going in. Rather, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He asked. Clearly, not having a great day. Um, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, he declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. You see, the Pharisees believed 
that eating with defiled or unclean hands made you unclean. That's why they likened it to sleeping with a prostitute. They thought that it was one of those things that would cause you to become separated from God. That's why they took it so seriously. And the same was true for eating foods that were not kosher, that's prepared in a certain way and declared clean by the Torah. But, you know, Jesus gives his disciples this quick biology lesson. I love that. I love how Jesus uses uh, science to make his point. He says you can't be made spiritually unclean by food because it goes in one end and out the other, essentially. However, there are certain things that can make you unclean. There are certain things that can separate from you from God. These, these things that live in your heart. And in ancient times, the heart was seen as the mind also. The heart and the mind were one. Things that sometimes we allow to control us, that we allow to get out. Th- evil thoughts, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. It's... It's quite a list that he provides and I suppose the temptation is that we look at that list and we say, no, no, not me. (laughs) No, I'm never greedy. I always leave the last slice of cake for someone else. I'm never deceitful. I've never told a lie. Not once. I don't envy others. Not even Jeff, whose house is bigger than mine. And I'm far too perfect to be arrogant. But I suppose if we're honest, we know that some of this stuff lives inside of us, doesn't it? And this is what separates us from God, when we allow our sinful nature to dictate how we live. When we allow our sinful nature to have mastery over us, to control the things that we say and control the things that we do. Things that our life produces, later on the the Apostle Paul writes into this when he's speaking to the Colossians and he says to them, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is, seated in the right hand of God. He says, set your minds on the things above, not earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He says, you used to walk in these ways, the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all of these anger and and rage and malice and slander and, and filthy language from your lips. He says, don't lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here's, there's, no, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile, there's no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or them, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. You see, going back to my earlier point, if we live according to our old nature, people will assume that Christ has had no impact on our lives whatsoever. Things are always as they have been and they'd be right. But if we call ourselves followers of Jesus and live however we want, We make them right, don't we? But if we live according to our new nature, the nature that's given to us by Jesus through the Holy Spirit, the world will see Jesus for who he really is. British writer William Toms once said, Be careful how you live. You will be the only Bible some people ever read. Be careful how you live. You will be the only Bible some people ever read. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? What do people read in your life? 
I want to bring this to a close this morning. Um, maybe the bands want to just kind of make their way up behind me. Um, I'm aware this morning that, that I've only really covered two-thirds of the chapter, um, and I've left out some particularly juicy stories at the end. Um, but that's okay, because I know that you guys are going to have the opportunity to, to discuss those in your life group and, and, and work through those together. Um, but I want to just leave you with a question this morning, just from the bit that we have read and the things that we thought about this morning. I want to just ask, where is your heart in all of this? Where is your heart in all of this? Because the temptation is that, that we read this story and we say, oh, silly Pharisees, always getting it wrong, weren't they? <laughs> Look at them. And, you know, they were getting it wrong, but I imagine that many of them started out with a genuine desire to serve God the right way, with a genuine desire to live for him. But over time, earthly distractions and temptations pulled them away from what God truly wanted for them. They began to replace relationship with religion. Tradition became their priority rather than seeking after God's heart. I think there's a lesson just in, in that alone. And the reality is that this could be any one of us if we're not careful. Those words in Isaiah, they honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. That could describe me at times. As I'm sure it could some of you as well. I know Jesus said that that was written about the Pharisees, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't written about us too. They attend church every now and again, but their hearts are far away from me. They read the Bible when they feel that they have to, but their hearts are far away from me. They do ministry, they, they serve my church, but their hearts are far away from me. They enjoy the singing, they're always singing at the top of their voice, but their hearts are far away from me. You know, they even tell others that they're a Christian, but I kind of wish they wouldn't, because their hearts are far away from me. You know, Jesus said that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is your life hid with Christ on high or is your life just dedicated to him when the reality actually looks very different? I think that's a challenge for all of us today, myself included. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray before we sing. God, our Heavenly Father, this morning we don't want to be those people who declare that something belongs to you and then live however we want. Father, we want to be those people who declare that you are our Lord, that you are our Saviour, that you are our Master, and then we want to follow after you. Father, we want our lives to be a testimony and a witness to your goodness and your mercy and your grace. Father, I pray that you would help us be the kind of people whom others see and say with confidence, Jesus has made a difference to them. They look different. They behave different. They show me the value in following after Jesus. Father, I pray that you help us to take that message to heart this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.